value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation or recommendation of any funds, services or products or to adopt any investment strategy. Good day, everyone. I'm Ron Insana, and welcome to the U.S. Lens. As you may well be aware by now, inflation has been running hot, not just in the United States, but also around the world. As commodity prices are moving higher, even as we've seen disruptions, not just in supply, but in places like China, in demand as well. Are we in a super cycle for commodities, or has inflation, particularly in stuff, run its course. Joining me now to talk about that is James Luke, Commodities Fund Manager at Schroeder's. James, good to have you back. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks, Ron. Nice to speak to you again. All right. So let's start first just with the broader question of, of where we are in this cycle. Many folks have suggested that there's a commodity super cycle going around, even though demand for stuff is is rather uneven when you're comparing China, for instance, let's say to the United States. Where do you put us in the cycle right now? I think I think structurally, our view is that we're still in the in the early stages of a, of a, of a, of a, of a multi-year cycle. So I, th- I think when we when we talk about commodity cycles, we have to talk about essentially long cycle impacts and short cycle impacts. So obviously, in the very short term, over the last week or two, uh, we've seen some pretty significant jitters uh, push through various parts of the commodity complex. So oil prices are down a bit, metals prices have been selling off. Um, their highs, and there, there's some pretty clear, um, you know, cyclical worries around that. Most notably, we've had China basically, basically struggling through a bit of a COVID quagmire uh, with with rolling lockdowns in various cities. Uh, and at the same time, we've seen the first the first signs of potentially peaking uh, manufacturing indexes uh, in the Western world in the developed markets. And add to that, you know, significant worries about what tightening liquidity uh, is going to do to all markets uh, in general. Uh, but for us, you know, ultimately, we're, we're, we're commodity uh, fund managers, commodity analysts, uh, and we focus on fundamentals. Uh, and for us, when we take a big step back, firstly, when we look at balances for 2022 and into 2023, uh, we still see very, very tight markets. We see close to record low inventories in agriculture. We see very, very low uh, inventories uh, in oil and markets which are still in deficit, even assuming uh, you get a demand slowdown uh, from here. And ultimately, we think the issues that we're seeing uh, in China from a COVID perspective are transitory. Um, Then if you talk about really the actual structural underlying drivers, the the core point that we made before when we we joined you on the podcast here was that we are not seeing a major supply response to higher prices. And ultimately, we've always said in the past, it's big supply responses that tend to kill uh, the commodity cycle. And absolutely core to our view today uh, is that we are not seeing a high supply response to higher prices. And that ultimately is what gives this cycle longevity. We, we can go into some of the reasons for that. But I think one of the absolute core ones uh, is the extent to which investment uh, in commodities has become or in production capacity has become persona non grata uh, because of its negative ESG uh, characteristics. Yeah, let me ask you about that, the, the lack of supply response. It's clearly true in the energy complex for a wide variety of reasons. Energy companies, let's say in the United States, where fracking was going on un, until recently, those companies are returning capital to shareholders rather than investing in new drilling. And, and then things like lumber and other commodities have also been constrained. Why is it 
that companies are so afraid to add supply in an environment where prices have, in fact, risen so dramatically? Well, I think in a nutshell, the returns environment is very uncertain. As you say, in, in energy, the, the, the kind of response of U.S. producers to shareholder demands for higher cash returns is very, very clear. But I think the bigger picture point is that you know commodity investments, particularly in the energy and the metal space, are very, very long cycle things. Uh, and in energy, you know, you're essentially investing for 15 to 20 years. The entire market, uh, most observers, most government officials are telling you that oil demand is going to collapse. Uh, in five years hence. And thus, thus you're expected to make multi-billion dollar investments into something which could well be a stranded asset you know, less than halfway through the life of the asset. So why would you rationally make that investment now at the same time as you've got investors giving, putting pressure on you uh, to reverse the, the, you know, the significant ca capital destruction they suffered uh, at your hands in, 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 in the previous decade? So I, I, I think the long cycle restrictions on expanding supply are very, very real. I think also, if you look at OPEC, you know, we, 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 Malcolm Melville, who's the, the energy fund manager uh, in our team, has been saying for a while now that if you look at the OPEC numbers, you know, they've got a pretty clear quota. Something over 400,000 barrels a day of production growth is meant to be coming through, and it's just not happening. They're not meeting that quota or anything like it. So it, it raises the question very clearly of whether OPEC's capacity is as high as the market thinks. Um, so that again, is and you've got the war in Russia and Ukraine, which is constraining supply because of sanctions against Russia, which may be a near-term problem or a long-term problem. We just don't know. I was going. I was going. I was going to come to Russia, which is obviously a key point. And yeah, I mean, you know, our view really is that we have not yet felt the impact of sanctions on Russian supply to the global market. We think if the Europeans do launch a full embargo, it will be, which, which obviously they already have, but with a lag starting basically the end of this year with some concessions to other consumers like Hungary, that that is going to significantly reduce global oil supply. There is no way that you can divert uh, even you know anywhere, even half of that supply uh, in, into the Far East. Uh, and so, yeah, in, so I, I didn't mention, mention Russia initially because to some extent you could argue that you know, Russian impacts on, on, say, grain supply, metal supply, even oil supply, you could say it's a, a force majeure one-time event. But the other factors that we described, the significant restraint on, on investment, that's, that's a very, very long cycle uh, issue. But sure, we, definitely, we think the lack of Russian barrels is, is, is really going to add to tightness in the oil market. And that's going to become even more apparent as we get deeper into this year. Can you explain one technical issue that uh, folks in the United States might be, I, I think, concerned about on a daily basis, which is that gasoline prices are at a record, and yet oil prices in 2008 were significantly higher than they are today. $147 a barrel was the peak in October of 2008, I believe it was. And today we're hovering around 100, 100 and change, and yet we see record prices at the pump in the United States. Is, is there, are there some other factors that are affecting energy supply that were not present over a decade ago? Yeah, sure. And it's, it's, it's obviously not just gasoline prices, it's gas oil prices, uh, all middle distillate prices in Europe. European gas oil, for example, is, is, is at all-time record highs, uh, which means that product cracks. So the margins that refiners are able to earn are also at, at all-time kind of obscene, obscene record highs. Now, you know, to our understanding, we think this is very much to do with uh, a combination of bottlenecks. So bottlenecks are, uh, arising from the COVID crisis and and, and, and a removal of refinery capacity, uh, particularly in the United States and Europe. And then more recently, some of the product grades 
uh, that come out of Russian-linked refineries uh, have also been impacted by, by supply bottlenecks, which is causing a real squeeze uh, in some of these product markets and dislocating them, them from the underlying crude markets. Which, 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 if you think about it, is also an interesting broader point, because in, in, in the energy markets, ex-crude oil, uh, if you look at thermal coal markets, if you look at natural gas markets, until very, very recently, you know, we've already been printing prices way above $200 a barrel uh, of oil equivalent. Um, and yet crude prices actually, are in, re in inflation-adjusted terms, are, are pretty much where they were from 2011 to 2013. They're not, they're yeah. not high at all. So actually, from a, from a commodity perspective, you know, one of the other points we've been, been making a lot is that there's a lot of room for those very, very high non-crude oil fossil fuel prices to essentially bleed into the underlying crude market as we go forward. So there's significant protection for the crude price, even if you get a normalization, say, of those product cracks or a further normalization of, say, European natural gas prices. What about the dramatically reduced demand from China? I mean, they're still in lockdown. We don't know when they're coming out, uh, given their zero COVID policy. There's some expectation that they might wind that down by the end of May. But certainly as they lock people into their apartments, it doesn't look like they're ready to give up on this policy. And, and certainly we've seen uh, a drop in demand and we've seen weakness in China's manufacturing sector and, and overall economy. How big a factor is that since China, in many ways, over a decade ago, was responsible for the last commodity super cycle? Yeah, yeah, it's a very relevant point. And I guess there are two ways of looking at it. On the one hand, you can kind of wring your hands and worry that we're about to see uh, you know, a significant collapse um, because Chinese demand is indeed extremely weak. We've seen big falls in oils, oil demand, big falls in metals demand. But the, the angle I tend, tend to take is, well, if you'd asked me 12 months ago, this is what's going to happen to oil demand. It's going to be down 20% year over year in China in April. And you'd have told me that by the end of Q1 2022, the steel PMI uh, was going to be back to the, 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 the 2020 COVID lows. What then do you think will happen to commodity markets? And I would say, well, they, they're going to be you know, in extreme distress. And actually, I, I would say we've already absorbed you know, a significant property market retrenchment in China. We're absorbing as we speak a significant you know, shock to oil demand. And yet oil inventories globally remain low. Metals inventories globally remain low, particularly in Shanghai, which is very, very striking. Um, so ultimately, you know, it comes down to the view of, do you think that the COVID um, stress, the COVID quagmire that I called it earlier, is a permanent feature of the Chinese market? Or is it something that, yes, it's creating a short-term headwind demand, but ultimately the Chinese government will force their way through it, and the end, the end, the end you know, result ultimately will be further stimulus to the economy, which, which is personally what I believe. So I, I, I would take the approach that, hey, well, if we can absorb this much of a demand shock, and this is where commodity prices are. Remember, this is not, this is not new information. No one, is, no one is looking at this and, saying, and being surprised. We've known the Chinese trade very weak for three, four months, um, and yet here we are. Um, so, uh, and from the structural point, yeah, of course, Chinese Chinese role, China's role in commodity markets today, is very different from when they were the the nascent kind of super cycle consumer of two thousand two, three, four, four, five, when they were suddenly inflecting uh, from being basically a net exporter of almost all commodities in the nineteen nineties to being a massive importer of, of metals and, and and slowly increasing their oil imports too. They're in a much more mature stage. Clearly, the, the urbanization cycle, the construction cycle, 
is much, much later stage. So anyone expecting kind of Chinese metal imports to, to surge like they have in the past is, is clearly going to be brutally wrong. So we also think it's important to recognize that, yes, while China is not going to go through another inflection point like we saw in the 2000s for metals markets, it might well be going through an inflection point you know, of, of similar magnitude in agricultural markets. And the reasons for that are pretty clear. We've got very difficult domestic production trends. Um, we have increased uh, per capita consumption as, as overall aggregate per capita protein consumption levels go up. And potentially most importantly, uh, we, we believe the government is, 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 is laser-like focused on uh, the stockpiling uh, of agricultural and, and broader commodities because they are, we, we believe, uh, quite worried about the external environment. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, you're listening to the Investor Download. Let, let me shift gears, if I may, um, with respect to the fact that Western central banks are tightening policy. We, we just got a print that consumer inflation in the United States remains stronger than expected. And the Federal Reserve, particularly in the United States, is now committed to driving inflation out of the system in a manner similar to Paul Volcker's efforts in the, in the late 70s, uh, early 1980s. When, when you have central banks raising rates, there's an expression, obviously, in the equities market that you don't fight the Fed. Is that applicable in the commodity markets as well? Uh, I don't think so, no. I mean, it was, it was in the 1980s. I mean, I guess, I guess there are two questions there. One, one is, do we really believe that, that, that um, Mr. Powell is Paul Volcker in disguise? Uh, and I, I fundamentally don't believe so. I don't believe that if Paul Volcker was chairman of the Fed today, he would have anywhere like the freedom to act that he did in the early 1980s. In the early 1980s, you know, US debt to GDP, I don't want to quote an exact number, but it was something close to 30%. Today, US debt to GDP is, is you know, well north of 100%. And if you add up total liabilities, it's substantially higher. So the, the room, the, the actual wiggle room that the Fed has to engineer tightening without triggering significant negative feedback loops into the real economy and to financial markets, I would argue is much, much narrower than Paul Volcker ever had. Um, and so I've actually, I think that if you listen to what the Fed has been saying, what Fed speakers have been saying over the last week, you know, more than one of them have been hinting that one of their most urgent priorities is to try to engineer a soft landing and therefore hinting that, you know, if, if inflation is still 3% in three years' time, then that's okay, as long as it comes down uh, over, over a longer period, over a longer time horizon. So I, I fundamentally don't really agree that we're in a Volcker-like uh, situation. Uh, turning to the impact on commodity markets themselves, well, if you, if you look at all of the hiking cycles, uh, certainly since the 90s, generally speaking, the first hiking cycle has marked the lows uh, in markets like gold, and actually base metals have tended to do pretty well uh, in, through, through the hiking cycle itself. Uh, I, think, I think right now, if you look at the gap between the March hike uh, and today and the drawdowns that we've seen in base metal prices, you know, that, that speaks more to the exceptional circumstances and, and the demand shock that we've seen in the short term from China than it necessarily does to a change relationship between commodity prices uh, and uh, the Fed's policy. So you bring up gold. Let me ask you about that, because um, it doesn't appear to be working much as an inflation hedge. It seems to have stopped at its old all-time high, just around $1,900, and has since come down you know, almost over $100 an ounce. And then other presumed inflation hedges like Bitcoin today uh, are, are 
breaking below 30,000. Is, is there an inflation hedge out there in the metals world that's actually working that isn't related to, in terms of base metals, constrained supply? Um, I mean, again, I would, I would have to take a little bit of issue with, with the statement that gold is, is performing poorly. I mean, we've, we've always argued that if, if you look at gold's inflation hedging characteristics, the strongest relationship has, be between, um, has been between gold and real interest rates rather than gold and nominal inflation. Uh, we've also argued that actually, ultimately, gold is the ultimate hedge against the loss of central bank credibility and a loss of ultimately stability in, in, in fiat currencies. So I would ask you this, Ron, if, you, if, you, if, you, if you'd asked me or if I'd asked you six months ago, and I told you that U.S. real rates were going to go up by 140 basis points um, by April or by, by May this year. What do you expect the gold price to do? Well, certainly I would have asked answered that question. I'd have said it would be about 1550 or 1600 by now. Yeah. If you look at 2013, that's exactly what happened. We saw 140, 150 bit um, increase in real rates as, as we went through the taper tantrum. And gold went down almost by a quarter, the biggest move in, in, in living memory. Actually, this year, that's, you know, we, so we've had a very sharply rising real rates, a very sharply rising dollar up, I think, about 8% year to date. And yet the gold price is flat year to date and close to record highs in most other currencies globally. Um, so, so for me, yeah, of course, gold, gold, gold price performance in the very short term as U.S. nominal inflation has been going up uh, has certainly been disappointing to anyone who thinks that gold should be hedging that, that one relationship between the gold price and nominal inflation. But actually, I would argue that gold price performance relative to its core drivers of the last few, few years has been incredibly resilient. Uh, and I think the reason, the reason for that is, you know, if, if you look at ETF flows, for example, into the gold market, they were substantially picking up even before uh, Mr. Putin decided to, to invade Ukraine. And I think that if, if, if you talk to people that are, you know, in the room with lots of major uh, macro allocators, including some of the big big allocators here at Schroders, they will argue that the, the market's view is increasingly turning to what the implications of Fed tightening are. And that speaks back to what I said earlier, which is that this is probably one of the riskiest you know, hiking cycles that we're, we're ever going to live through. We've got very high asset valuations, very high equity property valuations, and we've got economies which are absolutely laden in aggregate debt. Now, I don't necessarily mean the private balance sheet, the household balance sheet, but if you look at corporate and government and household balance sheets together, they are at absolute record levels. So that means the sensitivity to interest rate increases is huge. And so I think the market in goal or market participants are looking beyond uh, short term increases in real rates, you know, short term liquidity tightening and asking, well, what is the ultimate world that we're going to step into uh, once these rates have gone up? Uh, and I think central banks are going to be in a much more difficult position later in this year. Um, when ultimately they're going to have to choose between protecting growth and protecting employment and bringing inflation down. I mean, right now, this, it's, you can argue it's a very hard job, but it's also a very easy job. They've got, they've got two jobs in the U.S. One is protect employment. Uh, one is price stability. So the job market is booming. Prices are not stable at all. So what do you do? You're going to raise rates. What are you going to do later in the year if, if the economy meaningfully starts to slow? Uh, and, and, and I think you know, that, that conundrum, uh, is, 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 is what the gold market is starting to start to really think about. Yeah, now I've been arguing lately, and I only really have a couple questions left, but I've been arguing lately that a recession uh, might be a feature rather than a bug of current, let's say, Fed policy, and that they're willing to accept a couple quarters of declines in GDP, a slightly higher 
unemployment rate coming off 3.6%, which is effectively where we were pre-pandemic. If, if that's true, and the Fed does engineer, and it's very rarely engineered a soft landing, but does engineer a recession, does that affect the case for a commodity super cycle? Um, well, if you manage to engineer a global recession, then clearly that has to impact demand calculations. So I can't, I can't on the one hand, say that we're fundamental analysts and, analysts and, and fund managers uh, focused on supply and demand balances, and then argue that a global recession wouldn't make those balances looser in 2023, uh, or sorry, in 2022. Of course it would. Um, you would see you know, further destruction, ultimately, of, 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 of oil product demand, uh, aggregate metals demands would be lower than previously forecast. Um, but then the real question is, do you develop, because of that, surpluses which are so large that they then spill over into 2023, 2024, 2025, and therefore derail uh, the entire thesis? And at the moment, you know, when we stress our balances, that's not what we're seeing. We're, we're seeing markets where you have to put in very substantial declines uh, in oil, uh, sorry, in oil demand this year to get the market into surplus. So yes, of course, you would you, in a global recession environment, you probably would see uh, looser balances, higher ending points for inventories. But does it derail the overall thesis? Absolutely not. All right. Final question then. Um, away from those factors, we do have two other large, uh, longer-term issues playing out: deglobalization, at least potentially and decarbonization, do those also favor a commodity supercycle? Uh, deglobalization, absolutely. I mean, deglobalization uh, speaks to some of the points we raised earlier. It suggests you're going to have higher strategic stockpiles of pretty much all, all, all critical metals or strategic metals, agricultural products, oil. Um, it suggests you're going to have much more stressed uh, supply lines uh, and supply chains. Uh, across these commodities, it suggests it's going to be harder for, for example, Western companies uh, to bring on new projects in, in different parts of the world, which are, perhaps aren't, aren't quite so friendly uh, as they used to be. Uh, and it also suggests on the demand side, you know, a significant amount of supply chain replication. Uh, you've already seen Macron in France committing the French government to essentially rebuilding parts of the industry, which have been parts of industry which have been outsourced outsourced to the Far East over the last couple of decades. And I think that's something that we're going to see, you know, pretty much everywhere. Um, one of the I think, and I think one of the consequences of the Russia-Ukraine crisis uh, is, 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 is that it is a wake-up call uh, to governments who have become ov overly reliant on specific regions. Uh, and I think particularly, you know, the, we can't get away from the fact that the core of, of deglobalization is, is the potential, uh, you know, Unraveling of the of or further unraveling or further stressing of the, of the U.S.-China relationship. Yeah, uh, and that's that's that clearly given given the percentage of production which is located in, in China for for many uh, U.S. corporates that that has to and, and and the extent to which they benefited from you know overall supply chain efficiencies that that has to be an overall inflationary impact I think. Uh, and in terms of decarbonisation, I think decarbonisation feed, feeds directly into the into the. You know the, the the sense that greenflation is 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 a real issue. I mean, we we've had major aluminium producers into the office here in London over the last two weeks, and we've asked them directly. You know, why are you not investing? The aluminium price is pretty good. You're making pretty good margins. Why are you not investing? 
And the answer is pretty much always the same. They don't know what kind of regulatory environment uh, in terms of carbon pricing, uh, in terms of kind of um, border adjustment taxes, et cetera, they're going to be in in five to 10 years' time. Uh, there also is also more of a struggle from an ESG perspective, unless you have the absolute you know, greenest source of power, unless you have uh, access to, to hydro resources for aluminium smelting, to, to, to get bank financing for this type of project. Um, so, and you know, and we, we also can't forget, um, to your point earlier uh, about China, that the, the total scale of capex that we're talking about in terms of global decarbonisation actually dwarfs what the Chinese themselves have spent over the last 15 years on their own total infrastructure uh, and real estate construction. It's an absolutely mammoth task. I mean, you could argue that it's, it's completely unrealistic uh, in terms of the current supply chains that we have um, for, for materials and metals and that kind of thing. Uh, um, so you, you could argue that unless something changes, on metal supply side, then metals are going to be one significant constraint uh, on the energy transition itself. All right, James, a pleasure. Thanks for joining us again. Good to talk to you. It's uh, been a pleasure going over all this. James Luke is Commodity Fund Manager with Schroeders. And that does it for this edition of the U.S. Lens. I'm Ron Ansana. Thank you for joining us, and we will talk to you again soon. Well, that was the show. We very much hope you enjoyed it. If you want to find out more, check out our website, schroders.com forward slash the investor download. You can also get in contact with us about anything in the show or ideas for future shows at Schroders Podcast at schroders.com. Please remember to subscribe to us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review. We're now doing one show a week, which will be available every Thursday from 5pm UK time. Thanks very much for listening, but above all, keep safe and go well. Cheers.